Good morning. Our passage is in the bulletin for you, and it's also on page 991 in the Pew Bible. As we follow Jesus and learn more about living as a Christian, we sometimes discover that there are paradoxes when it comes to living for Christ. This is evident in our sermon series as we've been examining the purposes for which God saves us. We've seen we're saved for holiness, saved for discernment, saved for work, just to name a few. And last week, Mark preached that we're saved for justice, both eternal and here on earth, if and when possible. Well, today the title of the sermon is Saved for Quiet Living. And what is that? Is, is it at odds with hard work, or a fight for justice. Well, when Mark was planning this series, I did give him a few ideas, and this was one that I threw out there just because I myself was curious, and what I didn't know at the time was that the ideas that I threw out would automatically become the sermons that I had to preach. So, <laughs> but it's been good to sift through the meaning of this idea in this passage and in the whole Bible, um, in other passages of the Bible, and try to understand the life that God wants his church to live. First Timothy is a letter from Paul to his protege, Timothy. Timothy shepherds Christians in the city of Ephesus in the Roman Empire. And this church is in a culture that is largely pervaded by the worship of idols. In fact, Ephesus was the site of a temple to the goddess Artemis or Diana. And Paul had already been in trouble in this city before. And this was a fun story. I got to preach on this a few years ago. Uh, what happened was the, the gospel was spreading so widely that people had turned from their idol worship to follow Jesus, and it disrupted the economy there at Ephesus. All the silversmiths came after Paul. They stirred up a riot because they made the trinkets that were used to worship this goddess Artemis. All of a sudden, people are turning away. They're not buying the trinkets anymore. So there was a riot. So that's just a small idea of the culture in which these Christians lived who are um, under the care of Timothy. But the body of believers was also facing trouble from within in the form of false teaching, false teachers who taught based on speculation and veered away from the gospel of Jesus Christ. So Paul's point then in writing this letter is to charge Timothy to wage a good fight, to hold the faith and a good conscience. And he says this just prior to our passage today, where he starts talking about a peaceful and quiet life. In fact, uh, before we read our passage, I want to read you the tail end of chapter 1. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience, by rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. So Paul exhorts Timothy to warfare, and he's even naming names. Now let's continue on with our passage. We're in chapter 2 of 1 Timothy, verses 1 through 8. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, 
intercessions and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Let's pray and ask God to reveal the meaning of his word to us. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit's work to bring it alive to us, to give us the meaning to it. We ask for your help in these next few minutes that we would understand that we would have our lives changed to become more like Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Is there anyone who ever remembers changing their mind from the paint on a sign? Is there anyone who really recalls ever breaking ranks at all for something someone yelled real loud one time? These are song lyrics. John Mayer asked these questions in 2006 in his song, Belief. And he further observes that some hard believers need the exhibition and some have to know they tried. Some people seem to want to put on a show, a big brass show, and pick a fight. I, I wonder who he had in mind. It's not very hard to imagine many possibilities. Well, I don't remember ever angrily protesting anything as part of a crowd, but I do remember as a teenager being led to believe that it was part of my duty as a Christian to stand on a street corner in New York City, draw a crowd, and proclaim the gospel to complete strangers. It's easy for some of us to fall into being confrontational and antagonistic when we spread the gospel. And it's easy for others of us to fall into keeping our faith very private. And we can struggle with both of these tendencies in different, at different times in our lives. And this passage has truth for you, no matter where you fall. We're going to see that it's good for us to live quiet lives of peace for the salvation of others. We're going to see the foundation of a quiet life, the focus of this quiet life, and the freedom that we have in this quiet life. The foundation, the focus, and the freedom. And while each of us might have a picture in our mind when we hear the description, quiet life, we'll see what Paul has in mind or doesn't have in mind as we go. In general, before we start, we know what a peaceful and quiet life is. It's a life that is free of strife, free of antagonism. We're going to understand more as we go. So first, the foundation of a quiet life. We should consider the ways in which Timothy's culture and ours are similar or different. Like the people among whom Timothy and his church lived, many people in our lives don't have any knowledge of basic Bible stories or ideas. For instance, my wife showed me a video this week of a little kitten who nearly froze to death. And a family found him in the snow and took him in 
did some kitty CPR on him, fully revived him. One of the cutest things I've seen. And they named him, appropriately, Lazarus. And then I looked at the comments section, and somebody wrote in the comments, they should have named him Phoenix or Jon Snow or anything that comes back to life. <laughs> and then there was an edit right underneath the same commenter was like, I just Googled Lazarus. Okay, I'll show myself the door. <laughs> so, there is limited knowledge of God and His Word. Another similarity between the cultures is that people push back when you threaten the idols that they cherish. We've mentioned Artemis and that riot. Well, nowadays we face being ostracized if we're found to be closed-minded when it comes to living as holy people and calling others to holiness. But there are differences between the time and place of this letter and our time in this area. We don't yet face widespread government-sanctioned persecution just for talking about Jesus. That day may come, but for now we enjoy relative freedom of speech and religious beliefs and worship that these Christians back then would have loved to possess. So the foundation for a quiet life, what makes it possible? Well, according to Paul, the foundation for a quiet life is prayer. Look once again at verses 1 and 2. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Prayer is a priority for Paul. Following his example and examples of Jesus' prayer life, prayer is supposed to be a primary mode of life for us. Our first mode of involvement with the world ought to be prayer. I often treat prayer as a last resort. How about you? Now, who do we pray for and why? We pray for everyone in authority. Why is this? So that there's no strife in terms of having to hide our faith or having to look over our shoulders like you would if you lived in a country where Christians must meet in secret. Right now, we're mostly able to lead peaceful and quiet lives without having to keep our religion a secret. We must not take that for granted, but pray that these conditions remain favorable. Pause and note that it, it doesn't take much for a shift to occur, for us to lose these conditions. If we keep moving the goalpost to normalize sin and lawlessness in our culture, then eventually it won't be acceptable to call any sin what it really is. For example, this past week, Cosmopolitan ran an article with the headline, This is what it's like to fall in love with your brother. We don't call it incest anymore, we call it genetic sexual attraction. And this is not a one-time mention. There's at least one blog I know of that's devoted to removing the stigma of physical relationships between family members. Now, what if it becomes classified as hate speech to express that those relationships are wrong? That's not a long stretch. So pray for those in authority. We won't define all the words that Paul uses, but we should note that he isn't urging us to make passing references to the government in our prayers, which is the temptation, isn't it? We might know of this passage and we kind of throw out a reference to the government. It's tempting. 
In our weekly prayer, the people here, as long as I've been attending and worshiping here, I'm happy to know and thankful to know that we pray for the government no matter who is currently in charge, no matter who our elected officials are. And I'm thankful for that. But how likely is it that we pray for our leaders by name, especially if we dislike them? Or how likely is it that we care enough to know more of our local officers by name and pray for them? Notice here, the emphasis in this passage is actually on salvation. It seems Paul expects us to intercede on behalf of our authorities, specifically for their personal experience of God's grace, which is, how does that even, how often does that cross our minds? Paul also urges that thanksgivings be made. And bear in mind that he, as he's writing, is living under the Roman emperor Nero, who was horrible. Here's where that tension and paradox comes into our lives as Christians. Contentment and thankfulness coexisting with a longing for things to be better. These are possible at the same time. And I think you'll agree that governments could always do a better job. If you're like me, you have high standards for your authorities. Personally, I won't be happy until Jesus returns and everyone who is in charge of anything has been personally handpicked by him. But here's what I have to realize. They are. There is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God, Paul says in Romans. Only when we trust that truth, trust that truth, can we give thanks for our leaders while we pray for their salvation and sincerely hope for the best of them. So praying for those in high positions makes a peaceful and quiet life possible. But not only those in high positions. Paul urges prayer for all people. Now, this doesn't mean to pray for all people without exception. We don't have to put 7 billion people on our prayer list. But pray for anyone and everyone without exclusion, without discrimination, all kinds of people. What's the connection between praying for all people and leading a quiet life? Well, if the hearts of people are ultimately in God's hands, then the weight is not on us to do anything but be obedient to God. We don't worry and stress about changing the hearts of others. We can't do that. It's all on God. The Apostle Peter talks about not being a meddler. Meddling in other people's stuff. Being busybodies who needlessly nitpick at others. It's not what we're called to do. Seek a peaceful life. This prayerfulness for others results in concern for them and in peace toward them. For example, try praying for your spouse after a fight. You, you can't do it unless you're reconciled to them first. It's impossible to bear ill will towards someone if you're sincerely praying for them. Our prayers change us. So yes, our interactions should be free of strife as we can make them, but God also wants us to experience a calm inner life. Our attitudes toward others are affected by our prayers. We need to tend our hearts and we, have, we, we need to have them tended by God so that we will lean toward a kind disposition, toward forgiveness when we are slighted. So that's the foundation for a quiet life, prayer. Now we turn to the focus of a quiet life. Do we lead a peaceful and quiet life just for ourselves and our own benefit? No, the focus is on God and others. Look with me at verses 3 through 6. 
This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. In describing this peaceful and quiet life, Paul does not have isolation in mind. There's no isolation in the Christian life. God uses us to spread the gospel. That's his will. The desire of God for all to be saved ought to be our desire as well. It isn't just, oh, you know, that would be nice if if people came to Christ. No, Jesus commands it. Go make disciples of all nations. Now, as I said before, it's easy for some of us to fall into keeping our faith private, taking no active role in Christ's command, aside from supporting the efforts of others. And other Christians tend to be confrontational and antagonistic while they share the gospel. And I want to suggest that both outcomes are a result of keeping our faith limited to a small compartment of our lives. If you keep your faith private, you never talk about it with anyone except your fellow Christians. That could mean that following Jesus doesn't really affect the majority of your life. You aren't fully submitting your life to His rule. And if that's true, then spreading the gospel is probably not high on your list of priorities. On the other hand, there are Christians who try to spread the gospel with such harshness and in-your-faceness that you wish they really wouldn't bother. This is often a result of not really having much of a relationship with people who are not Christians. Then they feel guilty, knowing that they should be spreading the gospel. So they have these concentrated evangelism sessions, like that time I was preaching on the street to strangers. Now, Paul sometimes addressed crowds. Crowds of strangers in the appropriate environment. We don't really have public squares these days. But I don't think he imagined the average Christian going around shouting in public. His model was often different. In his travels, he worked and he shared the gospel with people. In other words, if we take his example and what he says here, it seems that we fulfill Christ's command to preach the gospel in the course of our everyday lives during our normal work and our going out. In other words, during plain old meaningful life. People hear the gospel from us in private conversation and also as they visit us in our places of worship. This is why we preach the gospel here every week. Unbelievers are invited by Christians who love them. Sometimes after some kind of conversation about current events, or ultimate truth, or even a simple, wow, you're really involved at your church. And by the way, like Nate said, this is also the idea behind our organizing many events here. Paintball yesterday, for example, just an event to help men meet other men in the area. Eat pizza, play war, talk, find commonality. The goal is that people we meet would come to faith in Christ. That's the, that's the focus of this quiet life. Lastly, let's invest a few minutes to think about the freedom of a quiet life. I was curious, I have to confess a bit nervous, before I began preparing this sermon. God uses His Word to transform us with the help of His Spirit. So it would be hypocritical to preach this message with no desire, no willingness to be changed by it. So I had a real fear that a quiet life might prevent me from doing some things that I love, such as having rational discussions and debates while holding a logically sound position. I take joy in that. 
Or I wondered whether a quiet life would keep me from arguing for justice. It's interesting that the phrase quiet life means different things to different people. I told a friend the other day about my sermon title, and he was like, oh yeah, busyness. So he contrasts a quiet life with busyness, and I contrast a quiet life with debate. I made a list of possible things that at first seemed to be the opposite of the quiet life. So here are some of those, and maybe one of these will feel dear to you. A quiet life versus being assertive and taking charge. Quiet life versus career ambitions or academic ambitions. Business goals. Hard work. Being an extrovert. How about a quiet life versus the performing arts, acting or putting on shows or doing concerts? How about a quiet life versus discipline and child rearing? Versus playing sports, being a sports fan, or arguing a viewpoint? How about fighting for justice? What about a quiet life versus public service? Does leading a peaceful and quiet life mean that Christians should just stay out of politics? Is is it a general demeanor or does it actually restrict our activities in some way? Well, we have to consider each admonition in the Bible in light of other truths that are there. And we also draw from examples of God's people throughout history and Jesus himself. So, good news. While it's true that this passage demands change for all of us in our hearts, it is change that will lead to better obedience and change that will actually enhance the good works in which God has called us to walk. None of the things that I just listed are negated. This passage has the salvation of people in mind. And that is the ultimate purpose, but it's not the only activity in life. Because if it were, I'd be urging every one of you to go be pastors and missionaries and do nothing else. No. There are many worthy pursuits and callings, and Christians should be found in every one of them. The difference is that our motivation should be a love for God and for others. And your manner ought to befit those things. No longer do we live selfishly. We live for God's glory and the benefit of others. To sum up this passage, we pray for all and for those in authority in the hope that we will be free to quietly go about our activities, free of strife, while spreading the gospel and seeing people saved. We can't go through the list I just read in detail, but how about just to take one, how about fighting for justice? That applies to lots of situations in life, lots of vocations. Are we picking fights if we see injustice and work to correct it? Are we straying from the quiet life? No. As a matter of fact, Christians have a long history of working to right the wrongs that they see in society. Paul says in Romans, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. And sometimes it's not possible. For those of you who don't know, Leslie is Pastor Mark's wife, and her middle name is Lovejoy. She is related to a Presbyterian minister from the 19th century named Elijah Lovejoy, who was an outspoken abolitionist. He published articles against slavery. He stirred the pot enough that a mob came to destroy his printing press, and in the scuffle he was shot and killed. So a quiet life is preferable, but it does not mean we have to keep quiet. We have examples of this throughout history. Jesus and Paul reasoned with people from the Scriptures, you know, working to change another person's mind, to align with the truth, 
is good, and it's often part of sharing the gospel. Debates are unavoidable, but can you represent your side while loving both truth and the person opposing you? It's a paradox, but it's possible. Your motivation should be a love for God and others, and your manner should suit that love. That doesn't mean we don't sometimes become stern. It doesn't mean we have to be fluffy all the time. We've got some lawyers here at Grace, and I'm sure that they need to sometimes put people in their place real good. But are you fighting for justice because your God loves justice and because you share His goodwill toward both the plaintiff and the defendant? How about business ambitions? Is it possible to have business ambitions and lead a quiet life? It is. But the Christian business owner must be someone who has the benefit of others in mind out of a love for God. That means you're not going to be underhanded and shifty. You're not going to be making deals that unjustly benefit you over the other person. None of these things are negated for the Christian. It all sounds good to have love for God and others. But there's a big problem with all of this. The problem is that it's not natural to have the concern for others that allows us to pray for them. It's not natural to take after God in desiring the best for others. In fact, it's not natural to be devoted to God and His desires at all. On our own, we seek our own ends. We're prone to bitterness when others treat us wrongly. We use people to better our situations. We get loud and we clamor for the things we think we deserve. And we live only for ourselves. That is our natural state. A state of rebellion against God. And even in our good works, if they don't proceed from faith and love for God, they fall short of His standard of absolute perfection. They are tinged with the aroma of selfishness and death. We need a change of heart to live out the peaceful, quiet, God-like and dignified life we've been hearing about this morning. But how to attain that kind of transformation? Well, the answer is also here in our passage. The change of heart comes from God's grace in Jesus. Verse 4, God desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. What's the truth? For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. See, Jesus came to fulfill God's perfect standard in our place. He was without sin, without the selfishness that mars all of our attempts to do right. He's man's perfect God and God's perfect man. And not only did He live righteously as you cannot, He died to take the penalty for all of your rebellion against God, if you will believe in Him. I urge you to depend on Him so that you can be accepted by God and so that He can change you to become more like Him. When we place our faith in Christ, His Spirit changes us. No longer are we these black holes sucking in life and grasping for our advantage. We're transformed into people who look upward and outward in love. And if you're already a Christian, don't forget that you depend on Christ and faith every day to be able to live in that manner. 
You know, this prayer for a peaceful and quiet life was not answered for Paul or for many other Christians. Soon Christians in the Roman Empire would be persecuted and killed by decree of the emperors. We're not there, though we could be someday. But through times of relative peace and through times of persecution, the gospel goes forward. May we live as God intends, prayerfully, and with a desire to see people saved in the normal course of knowing us. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would press this word into our hearts, that we would be people who live peaceful and quiet lives, godly and dignified in every way, that we would desire to see those around us in every relationship and every transaction come to know you. And we ask that you would transform our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.